Welcome to the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion, a bi-weekly podcast where two nerds and a newbie watch Avatar The Last Airbender and provide all their thoughts, feelings, and opinions. I'm Kelly. I'm Mike. And I'm JJ. To recap, previously on Avatar The Last Airbender... Aang, the Avatar, joined with waterbender Katara and her brother Sokka on a journey to the North Pole to fulfill his destiny. Exiled Prince Zuko of the Fire Nation is hot on their trail. So now we're getting into... Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Um, We are moving on now today to episode... um, Three. We're doing episode three, four, five, and six today, so it's going to be a really ambitious episode. We're going to get through a lot. Um, as a result, my recaps are significantly shorter uh, than they were on the previous podcast. And I think that will kind of vary depending on what it is that we're tackling on a given episode. Um, we, you know, we might get more in-depth or less in-depth in the recaps, but the conversation will still be quite robust, I think. I have a lot of notes uh, this time around. So why don't I just get started with episode three? Um, Episode three is the Southern Air Temple. After 100 years, Aang returns home to the abandoned airbender temple where he is forced to confront both his past and his future. Although he tries to deny it, when he finds the skeleton of his beloved mentor, Aang must accept the terrible truth. The Fire Nation destroyed the only family he has ever known. Luckily, Katara and Sokka are his new family now, and a lemur named Momo joins the group. Meanwhile, Prince Zuko faces off against the ruthless Commander Zhao, and with his mercy proves that he is the more honorable of the two. So that's our super mega quick recap of episode three. I, I think you hit all the, all the big beats, yeah. Yeah, so that's basically kind of the overview. Obviously, um, a lot more happens in the details of that episode, which I think we can certainly go into in our discussion. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you guys is, what do you think of this episode? It's so dark. I keep coming back to this <laughs> because, you know, as we mentioned in the previous discussion of the first two episodes, that this is, you know, it, it features genocide, but now we actually see the after effects of it and oh my god it's so dark that you know he's gone into the sanctuary and then emerged from the sanctuary and wandering around and sees the skeleton of his mentor who's been dead for a hundred years it's so dark like oh my god yeah it really is um it's very it's very dark it's very creepy there's a lot of um you know weird creepy stuff um and a lot of things that invoked like a really passionate response in me oh yeah so yeah well one of the things that I hate most in all fiction and in life happens in this episode um and it's so you know they go there they go to the airbender um temple and Katara and Sokka are, you know, really pretty much convinced that they're not going to find anything there. There's going to be no one left. Um, And Aang is 
not really concerned about that. He's kind of like, well, I survived, so who's to say that other people haven't survived for a 100 years? And he's just really excited to get home and be in this place that he recognizes. And, um, you know, Katara and Sokka just kind of, you know, go along with it. They kind of become a little bit infected by his optimism. And then when they're there, um, Katara and Sokka discover evidence that the Fire Nation was absolutely there and and most likely killed everyone um, at the temple. And they're about to call Aang over to show him the evidence. And Katara does the thing that I hate most in fiction, where she decides to withhold information and lie because she wants to protect Aang and she thinks she knows what's best for him. I hate, I hate with a passion when this happens in real life and in fiction. I, I hate when people decide to deliberately withhold information because they think they know what's best for you. Um, and I'd argue that it really backfired because Aang kind of freaks out later on at the end. I mean, there's for no, sure. I mean, he might've still, he might've still freaked out, you know, if he had just seen that, that evidence, he might've freaked out anyway. And there's no knowing that. And I know that it comes from a good place in Katara. Um, you know, really has the kindest heart and the best intentions with it. Um, I, I, like, I despise this as a, as a thing, as a trope in fiction. It's really short-sighted. Yeah, I had to agree with Sokka. Yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's just really short-sighted, because if there's some evidence that firebenders were there in this one random corner of the place, who's to say that there isn't a shitload more elsewhere, you know, that they're... Aang is going to see from the air or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I didn't like it either. Although, it actually, for me, this episode goes kind of a long way to show Sokka as... Yes. As he's mm-hmm. like, we should tell him. And, you know, but he wants to be kind as well in the sort of, like, big brother sort of way. And I think he goes about it so much better than Katara does, who's like, no, no, I'm going to protect his fragile feelings. Which, I, yeah, I, I did not like that either. Like, at all. Yeah. So, I mean, that was... That kind of sucked. <laughs> but again, you know, like, I, I I see why, and I I did appreciate that it, it backfired a little bit. I mean, so one of the things that we'll get into over the course of the remainder of our, of our discussion as we move through all these episodes today um, is how impressed I am with the fact that a short show because episodes come out to about like 22 to 24 minutes each in runtime. And even given that short runtime, they really do address a lot of consequences um, in terms of like the choices that the characters make and the things that happen resonate and come back and have, Meaning, you know, encased within the episode itself, because we are still really episodic right now, which is another thing that I'll get into later. But, um, (laughs) you know, I appreciated that at least, you know, Katara made this decision and it turned out to be probably a poor decision because instead Aang, you know, stumbled across the skeleton of his mentor in, you know, the most horrific way and wasn't at all prepared um, for that. And he freaks out and his avatar powers start to activate, you know, and um, Katara is able to talk him down by, you know, explaining how much 
she and Sokka care about him and that they're his family now and that, you know, they're there for him. And so that in and of itself is really lovely because it shows how close these people have become in such a short amount of time. Um, so the episode didn't just let it lie. And I, I appreciate that, but I still hate it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that was one thing about, um, this episode. The other thing that this episode does is it brings in a lot more about the world building and the mythos in terms of, um, well, one with the airbending nation, the airbenders, they're not all nations, right? It's like the earth is a kingdom. There's the water tribes, the fire nation and the air nomads. Nomads. The nomads. nomads. Yeah. Thank you. So the thing with um, um, them being nomads real quick, um, this is the Southern air temple and without ruining it, you know, whatever, there are others, and that's how they they migrate from one to the other. That's, like, part of their culture was they don't stay put in one corner of the world. They're unbound by earthly things, which is also where they draw their spiritualism from and why all of them can bend. Yeah. Yeah, so it, I mean, it, it gave us a much more detailed glimpse into what that society is like, which was interesting. And, you know, the sport that they had, what is the name of that? Airball. Airball. Air ball. Uh, sports ball. Tibetan uh, Quidditch, <laughs> I've, I've been calling yeah. it. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, that seemed really cool. I liked, you know, that bit of world building. Just all the things that you get to see both in the present day as they're wandering through the abandoned temple and in Aang's flashbacks um, were really interesting. I enjoyed all of that world building. And it also, this episode talks a lot about, um, or I don't know that it talks a lot about, but it introduces a lot of new ideas around the Avatar itself once Aang goes into the temple. And so some of the things that I learned are that the Avatar is apparently reincarnated, um, which does make sense now that I think about it. I hadn't initially thought of the Avatar as you know, somebody that was the same soul that was reincarnated. Um, but given the way that, you know, the avatar always comes back and moves through the elements and all that stuff, it, it makes sense. Um, so that was interesting. It also leads me to a lot of questions though, about why, I guess, I guess it's hard because we're, you know, this is episode three, so I don't know how much of this stuff is, just a small fraction of the world building and the mythos that will be expanded later, or if I'm supposed to take it as like, this is the sum total, you know, it didn't seem like the water tribe that Katara and Sokka are from had any kind of, a collective understanding about the past avatars, even though some of them at some point must've been waterbenders. There was no like temple or shrine or anything like that, that we saw. Um, so is the, is the airbender are the airbenders the only people that keep this information that have you know this record of all the avatars past lives I if don't so why think so. i don't think so and the reason is this so when ang goes into the avatar state you know when his eyes glow mm-hmm. and everything you'll notice that different lights all over the world turn on right you saw something in one of the poles you saw something 
in the Earth Kingdom, you saw something in the Fire Nation, and you assume you saw something because we're at the Southern Air Temple. So every nation does have its own record, and though all those lights going off to me was an indication of whoever was keeping the Avatar lore knew that the Avatar had returned. Okay, that makes sense. I guess I didn't think of it that way, but I can see that. That is a good that's... point, though, Kel, because I never really thought of it that way, that there is no structure of any kind in the Southern um, Water Tribe. They don't, they don't have any shrines or, I don't know, museum-type yeah. things, nothing like that. I mean, and we know we know that the Fire Nation came and attacked them and, and killed many of them, and so it's possible, you know, that that was just all destroyed, and that is why it is either no longer there or that we didn't spend any time with it. So, you know, I can accept that as a, you know, they don't have one at the South Pole because it was destroyed in a fire. Um, <laughs> but but because they didn't, because there had been no mention of it until now, I was just kind of like trying to, f- to feel out what um, what that was all about. Yeah, they don't. I mean, this does venture into spoiler territory, so we won't go too far into it. But I'll just say that the Southern Water Tribe is kind of seen as more rustic than their northern mm-hmm. counterpart. Okay. I'm trying to think. Of th- so the other thing, the other main component of this um, episode is Zuko's storyline. And we find out a little bit more about his backstory, but not really very much at all. Um, We get a clearer understanding of his exile, although not the reasons for his exile, but apparently he's been exiled for quite a long time. There's a lot of um, kind of shrouded talk about his father and his father's disappointment in him and, um, all of this stuff as he is, um, you know, kind of brought face to face with Commander Zhao. And I thought that fight scene was really interesting. Zhao is a real dick. Yeah. He really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's Jason it's, Isaacs. He's, he's Lucius Malfoy, so he can pull off yeah. being a real dick. There you go. Right. Um, I think it's interesting that, and I'm, I'm more cemented in ever than ever in my theory from the first episode that um, Zuko is not the main antagonist of the story. Like, he's a foil, and he's obviously an antagonist, but he's not, like, the supreme villain of the piece. And I'm even more confident in that belief now, which, again, maybe you'll laugh at me later. But this is... I'm I'm confident in that now because um, the show makes you root for him. You know, when it's him against the commander, you are rooting for Zuko to kick his ass. Yep. 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 It's you know, and you kind of stop back and you go like, "Wait, this this kid wants to like go out and murder people and you know do all these horrible things, and yet and yet I'm pulling for him in this uh, particular confrontation." Um, And the you know, Iroh continues to be wonderful, just constantly being there for him, supporting him, um, just being the amazing father figure that Zuko apparently doesn't have. So I just love Iroh even more. Um, but yeah, what about that storyline? Do you guys have any thoughts there? 
I have to echo. I mean, I love Iroh. And the other thing is, you know Zuko is going is bound to be sympathetic because of Iroh. Like, they mm-hmm. wouldn't pair an out-and-out villain with someone like him. Mm-hmm. Um, I also just love their kind of almost odd couple dynamic, you know, where they get off the Fire Navy ship and Zhao meets him at the dock. And Zuko's like, Uncle! Tell Commander Zhao what happened. All right. <laughs> and Iris is like, uh, yeah. Well, uh, was it a battle or something? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like this awkward back and forth of, yeah, this this thing. <laughs> I just I just love the two of them together so much, and um, mm-hmm. just Iris' philosophy on life, I feel like, is something that I feel everyone could adopt. Just, mm-hmm. <laughs> just chill and. And some more tea, please. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, maybe this is... I'm coming at this from this bizarre angle because I'm a parent. I have a child. But Iroh is just masterful in the way that he handles Zuko. Because he never condescends to him, ever. And yet, he never... Like, not to, like, use a million fire puns, but he never, like, fans that flame of Zuko's, like crazy teenage hormonal rage. Um, He's just always, you know, he diffuses everything with jokes and with, you know, offhand remarks. And he knows when to be, um, you know, when, when to back Zuko and when to really, you know, in that confrontation when Iroh steps in and is like, Zuko is more honorable than you, you know, and he is essentially a child and you're a grown man and this is, you know, disgraceful behavior on your part and he is truly the more honorable one, even if he is in exile. And then as they're walking away, Zuko, you can tell, is really touched and he's kind of like, did you mean that? And um, Iroh deflects and goes back to a comment he made earlier about tea. He's like, oh yes, ginseng tea is my favorite. Of course I meant it, you know? Like, it's just really, like, from a parenting perspective, (laughs) just so weird. I can't believe I'm talking about Avatar The Last Airbender from the perspective of a parent. But it is really genius to walk that line and give, you know, a younger person what it is that they need to hear while not, you know, feeding into, you know, all of their more base impulses, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. It's very impressive. I love Iroh, basically. That fight scene was also gorgeous. And the sound from it, like, it was just that simple low music and the sticks, like, hitting together. And I think, JJ, you said this last time that they upped the frame rate or something for that that scene alone. But Yeah, you can, like, the... You can tell the animation looks much more smooth, the angles at which things are drawn from. Um, some of the fire is computer animated, but... Oh, most of his hand drawn. You can see it. It's amazing. I thought that the fight sequence was great. Um, yeah, me too. And the, yeah, and the music. And you'll hear that phrase come up again, Agni Kai, which is when two people in the Fire Nation basically have a duel. Mm-hmm. Um, and the word Agni actually is Sanskrit for fire. So, it, you know, this kind of they do draw on a lot of influences. Like, obviously, it's based a lot on East Asia. You know, you've got kind of the Tibetan monks that are the air nomads, and then you have uh, Fire Nation, which is kind of this amalgamation of 
like Imperial Japan and I think like Tang Dynasty. So they kind of draw all these influences, but they do it in a way that's really well done. I think that doesn't feel like they're just cherry picking what <laughs> what seems cool to them. Um, so I I thought it you know it just everything about the show when you go back to the world building of it how well it's researched from somebody who is more familiar with eastern culture is really really impressive mm-hmm. oh i did want to say um back uh in the air temple there's uh that that door that you can only open with air bending this is this hits like a nerve with me because it is a prime example of how terribly this franchise has been marketed um in terms of, there are three video games uh, based on this show out, and all of them are pretty famous for being bad. And for the longest time, I felt like this show practically writes its own video game. I mean, you can do, like, motion gaming, like with, you know, the Wii or the, you know, PS Move or any of the, uh, like, things that are out there. That would kind of make itself, and you could actually teach people, like, fighting forms, or... You could do, like, a Metroidvania old-school thing where you need to upgrade your guy to open doors. <laughs> yeah. Learn new skills to do right. this. Like, yeah. it writes itself, and they just didn't do it. Like, nobody came through. There's a Korra video game out that's, like, kind of like that. It's it's all right, but it's not... I mean, they just haven't really connected with that aspect. And I feel like it's it's so obvious, too. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like a card game, like a, a ma- like a card based duel game, like yeah. Magic the Gathering, or even Yu Gi Oh, because Yu Gi Oh had a card game. You could actually do that with Avatar as well, because you could have the elements and you draw from this, and you know, there's just like kind of a lot of stuff. I mean, I think that just goes back to the richness of the world building. There's just so much you can draw from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That they. Yeah. I don't. This this show. It's amazing that. It's as good as it is because I feel like it just had so many things against stacked against it. Yeah, and it kept almost getting canceled like the entire time it was on TV. Ugh. Yeah, we can't have anything nice. That's why. Pretty much. <laughs> All right. So then, why don't we? Do we have any kind of last thoughts before we sort of move on to our like our favorite bits and trivia? I think that's the most for me, so let's move on to the favorite bits. Uh, Mike, do you want to start? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like Airball as, like, a world-building. Like, that just adds color to, hey, they're athletic, and they do a thing that's on, only a thing that they can do. Um, I also really, really liked when they were making the cakes, and they threw yes. it. Yes. Because, again, <laughs> the food on this show is, like, so... Kel, I think, like, a, a few weeks back, I sent you a BuzzFeed article that was, like, Miyazaki food. And you did. It. it was amazing. There's so much <laughs> of that in this show of, like... And I live in... Uh, they call it Asia on Argyle in uptown Chicago. And, like, that food is all around me. So every time I watch an episode, I'm like, well, now I gotta go, you know, three blocks over and get that. <laughs> um, oh, one last thing about the food. Um, Momo's name, Momo, is a Tibetan dumpling. Oh, because actually yeah. I was going to say Momo is actually also the Japanese word for peach. Oh. And so the thing oh, that Oh, isn't he... that like Momofuku, the restaurant, has the little peach Yeah, emblem. Momofuku, yeah. Um, so Momo is peach, because that's what I thought it was from, like what he steals out of Sokka's hand. 
I thought was a peach, but oh, it could be have it. been a dumpling as well for for all I, that's cool though. Um, so, any sort of favorite moments or quotes, Mike, that you really liked? Um, when they finally got the air door open and Sokka was like looking for food the entire time, and they just see an entire spiral of statues, and he's just statues. Where's the meat? Yes. <laughs> Sokka just reinforcing with pretty much every episode that he's my favorite. He really is. Everything that Sokka does. I think just like later on in the episode, he's just like, I'm just a simple guy with simple needs. <laughs> oh, I love you, Sokka. Uh, but yeah, I, what I liked about this episode is that it does give Sokka more depth that you, than what you saw previously. Because, you know, in the first two episodes, he's just womp womp. Yeah. You know, he's the butt of everyone's jokes and, and this and that. But really here, you kind of see that he's not one-dimensional. He's got sides to him. He's kind. You know, he's, you know, he's in it with his sister wholeheartedly for his own reasons and they're altruistic in their own way. So yeah, this, this to me was definitely Sokka's episode. Although I also love the flashbacks to when, Aang, you know, when all the other air nomads were around and I just, I love their sense of humor. I think that really, to me, that's like sometimes I go back and forth between whether or not I align myself with the Air Nomads or Fire Nation. But it's stuff like this where I'm like, yeah, I, I could live I with think the you're Air Nomad. I think you're an Air Nomad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. What about you, Kelly? What are your favorite bits? Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, I would have to say the things that you guys mentioned. Nothing in this episode really stood out for me um you know so where we are in terms of like my watching of avatar the airbender is we had the pilot and i kind of confessed that i was like yeah it's okay whatever um and i kind of felt like this was more of the same um i appreciated that it expanded the world a little bit and that it gave me a little bit more insight into the nature of the Avatar, um, that stuff was interesting. Um, and of course, some of the individual lines, again, the flashbacks with the cakes and all of that stuff were, um, of course, charming. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, th this one was still kind of like, if I wasn't watching it for the podcast, I don't know that I really would have kept watching it. Yeah, this um, is kind of like part three of a three-part opener, to be completely yeah, honest. It really is kind of a continuation I will say, you know, that it, I mean, again, we mentioned this briefly before, but it, like, it's dark. <laughs> like, this is, this is some dark stuff going on. Um, and it's really like visceral, like Aang finds the skeleton of his mentor and that's horrific. But even the flashbacks, you know, like when we go into the flashbacks, there's like more than one flying bison. You yeah. know, like just chilling out and like grazing and stuff like that. And it's like you, you all the obviously all the monks and all the every like you just get the sense that like they wiped out an entire civilization. Like, you know, we mentioned before in the previous podcast, like this was a genocide. This was a horrific thing. All of these people and animals and beings have been murdered and are gone. And we still don't know why. 
you know, just but like, cause. but that just because heavy stuff. That's evil. heavy stuff. Yeah, it's it's true evil, and so, I mean, I, um, I appreciate the weight of the stakes. I think a lot of this episode was, um, the two big points of it were, one, to establish, or to get Aang to understand that, like, shit is real and the stakes are crazy high. And also, what with adding Momo to the group, they've now added, that's like the core group of season one. They've finally got everybody together and now out into the world they go, like, as a unit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do really get the sense... Well, eh. <laughs> I got the sense at the end of this episode that they were really going to set off and start doing things. We'll find out whether or not that actually happens <laughs> when we move <laughs> on to the next episode. But um, are we ready to move on, or is yeah. there anything more we need to talk about for this one? I think we can move on. Oh, wait, one, right. one thing real quick. I did see that uh, Agni also means fire in Hindi. Yes. Well, actually, I think it's Sanskrit, not Hindi. Um, but yeah, it does mean fire. And I believe Kai is a reading of, you could, the way you can say fire in Japanese, a reading of the kanji. So it's basically, it's fire, fire. <laughs> Two different <Okay>. languages. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I think fire, that's fire. all. That's all I got. So. All right. Like move along, yeah. Let's move on to episode five then. Um, oh no, episode four. Sorry, I skipped ahead in my little... Uh, recaps. Episode four uh, is titled The Warriors of Kiyoshi. <laughs> Aang's quest to find Elephant Koi and delay his fate brings the, game, the gang to Kiyoshi Island. Aang tries and fails to impress Katara, but the adoration of his island fan club helps to ease the sting. Sexist Sokka is first humiliated and then educated by the island's female warriors, led by Suki, my queen. <laughs> <laughs> Things quickly turn dire when Zuko catches up to the group and sets the village ablaze. All they can do is flee, hoping to draw the Fire Nation's wrath away from their new friends. So... A couple of things. When this episode first opened, you know, I think it opens on this. It, it opens either the first image or quickly thereafter is Zuko. And he's like frustrated because the avatars maneuvering is so evasive and so strategic and they can't, you know, discern any pattern to where he's going. And it turns out that they're just literally going on Aang's like adventure bucket list that he <laughs> rattled off at the end of the previous episode. <laughs> they're literally just like, now we're going to ride koi fish and now we're going to go here and now we're going to go there. Um, and I get that the kid's been locked up in ice for a hundred years. So, you know, but still, um, I, when the, the episode began, you know, they're riding these koi fish and whatever. And I was really like, I, I was not happy about it. <laughs> I wanted the story to get started. Um, I was very, you know, I was like, you're going to the North Pole. We're going to learn how to waterbend. Let's do it. Like, let's have something relevant happen. Um, because right now this is feeling really episodic. And I also want to acknowledge that, you know, for 
a cartoon on Nickelodeon, episodic is kind of the deal. Like, (laughs) if there is an overarching plot, then that's just bonus. You know, I think most of what Nickelodeon tends to do is more episodic in nature than these long serial stories. Yeah, there's not a lot of character growth on Spongebob going on right now. Right, you know? And so this is, like, my own personal thing where I... All the television that I really love is heavily serialized, you know, with, like, plots arcing over seasons. Um, And so I haven't watched episodic television in a really long time. (laughs) And so I think that was just kind of hard for me at first to get used to, that, okay, this is going to be a little bit episodic in the beginning. Um, So that really was very frustrating in the beginning of this episode. However... It was almost immediately forgivable as soon as Suki arrives. And I have to say, I need to know if she comes back. <laughs> like, I have, I have this horrific feeling that we're never going to see her again. Do you want to be spoiled? I don't know. <laughs> Do I want to be spoiled? I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, is that a spoiler? Is that a spoiler if you find out if someone comes back? Yes, it is. Later? It is. It is a spoiler? Damn it. Fine, don't tell me, but I, (laughs) (laughs) I will be, I mean, we will be at the end of all three seasons and I will be bitching if we never see her again because she's the best. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad you like Suki this much. This makes me really happy. <laughs> She's amazing. She was like, it was amazing. And I know that the, okay, so let's let, before I, you know, get in ahead of myself and get into this whole rant, let's kind of talk more in depth about, um, the plot of this episode. So the A plot is Aang and he's trying to impress Katara, um, over and over again, you know, with various things. When he's, you know, riding the giant koi, he wants her to look, and he's disappointed when she's not there for part of it. And it's kind of like this recurring thing throughout the episode. He wants to get her attention and impress her. And I can't quite figure out what the show wants me to take away from that. I mean, the obvious conclusion is that it's somewhat romantic in nature. It's a very, like, crushy, romantic sort of a thing to do. Um, If they are going to go with romance in this show, which I don't know that they are, but if they do, Katara and Aang make sense, because they're the two main characters, I guess. Um... (laughs) I'm, <laughs> I'm not necessarily feeling it. I'm okay if, like, and, and, you know, like, who knows? We've got a whole bunch of show to come, and I'm sure that I'm saying all kinds of stuff now that, you know, later on is going to be um, come back to bite me or will be hilarious when you guys have your little secret club of spoilers later. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I'm of multiple minds of it. If it is romantic in nature, which is kind of in part how I interpret it, though not completely. If it is romantic in nature, then they could go the route of Aang has this kind of, like, mild crush on Katara that he'll grow out of, and then, it, you know, who cares? It doesn't really matter. Or, you know, it could develop into something eventually, later on down the line. I don't really know. 
it could not be romantic. Um, I could be just reading into that because it's such a common trope. Um, you know, maybe it's, I don't know that he, I mean, like, I think by nature, regardless of whether his feelings for Katara are romantic or not, I think Aang, um, is an intention seeker and enjoys attention anyway. I mean, we saw that back in the village, um, of the water tribes when he was, you know, doing his airbender tricks and letting everyone ride Appa and, you know, all that stuff. And he has been alone for a very, very, very long time. So wanting companionship and attention and, um, you know, all that stuff is completely understandable. Um, kind of annoying. I think it was meant to be kind of annoying. Katara was certainly annoyed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I couldn't, like, I guess I couldn't, I, I couldn't tell how the show wanted me to interpret that. Is that supposed to be romantic? Is it not supposed to be romantic? What is the point of it, really, specifically? I mean, I know that, so as the plot line evolves, he's continually trying to impress Katara and it's not working and he kind of becomes this minor celebrity on this island that they've gone to and you know all the girls in the village love him and follow him around everywhere and he's got this little fan club and um Katara gets annoyed because she thinks that Aang is kind of shirking his responsibilities in favor of basking in this attention and she keeps telling him you know we have to leave we have to leave we have to leave the fire nation is coming we've got to get out of here and he doesn't listen and of course you know the fire nation arrives because they've they've stayed there too long uh and so then ang feels really guilty about that at the end i, I guess i just don't i don't know i guess i can't figure out what the purpose of it is really I don't know what the show's trying to say with it, and it doesn't immediately come back in any of the subsequent episodes, so I don't... I don't know. What do you guys think about that plot? Now that I'm sure I've said, like, a whole bunch of embarrassing, annoying, <laughs> weirdo stuff. <laughs> Unpicking two of those things. Um, the first part, the romantic part, I think it's pretty clear Aang has a crush on her. Okay. I I mean, I think so. I mean, that's how I read it the first time I saw it. Yeah, Especially, didn't they do, like, a Dreamweaver shot of her where she was in soft focus and Yeah, sparkly? like, she's, like, sparkly and yeah. he's, like, <laughs> when he opens his eyes, that's, like, the shot of her where she's all, like, beautiful and sparkly and, and everything. Um, and there's, like, kind of the way they animate Aang, like, there's, like, a scene where she's, like, repairing Sokka's pants. Yes. <laughs> and, he, and, and Aang is just kind of gazing at her. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I tended to interpret that as Aang has a crush on, on Katara. Um, so that was the way I looked at that. So that his attention seeking is partially because he wants attention and also partially because he wants to impress her because he thinks right. she's pretty. Um, so there's that. The second part as to what the point of this was, I don't want to spoil anything necessarily, but... You get the sense that Aang is avoiding something. Yes. Right? So the point of this was his avoidance has consequences. Uh-huh. He has to learn that before he can kind of move on. That's essentially what yeah. it is. Yeah, and I, and I think that has been a consistent thing, you know, since episode one. He, you know, he kind of lied by omission by not really telling Katara that he was the Avatar. He knew what was going on. Um, and he just, you know, he's kind of always sought to avoid the larger responsibility that he has. So I can see that for sure. 
I just, I don't know. I, I, it seems strange to me, but I guess like now that you say that I can, I can see how that all ties in. Yeah. So Mike, do you have any, any thoughts about this episode? Um, about that plot. Cause I have a lot to say near, about the next one. <laughs> there wasn't really enough Iroh in it for me, but I did like at the beginning where Zuko was like kind of meditating in front of a row of candles and with every breath they grew, you know, until yeah. he stands up and he's pretending to be all serene and Iroh gives him bad news and they explode <laughs> and char the ceiling. Um, yeah, that was really great. I loved that scene too. Um, yeah, I liked that a lot. I think, obviously, in case you can't tell, the B plot of this episode was my favorite. So let's let's and, discuss that then. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> and, Suki and the Kyoshi Warriors. And the um, well, not only was it my favorite because Suki is amazing. Um, but it was my favorite because I think it, again, is such an ambitious plot for a children's show. I think that they don't even necessarily do this type of plot in adult shows, and they should. And not Agreed. only was it an, amb- yep. an ambitious plot, but I also think for the most part, it was really well executed. And I think that it's really easy to screw this sort of thing up or to like bring it up, but then not go all the way with it and really address it. Um, this episode, in addition to you know, Suki, who's again, amazing, um, cemented my love for Sokka. I love Sokka forever and ever and ever now after this episode. (laughs) I, I really don't think there's much that he could do that, um, could ever displace my affection from this point on. Yeah. I love Sokka. So, so this plot, this B plot with him is, is about sexism and, and right in episode one, the first thing that I mentioned that I loved about the show was that Katara called Sokka sexist. Um, and he is the episode, this episode, episode three opens with, you know, like JJ mentioned before, Katara is mending Sokka's pants and he's being really sexist about it. And she just kind of gives him back and says, fine, you know, I'm not even going to fix him and whatever. And it sets the stage, you know, that little interaction kind of sets up the rest of his, plot, which is when they arrive on this island, they are captured by warriors and they're blindfolded. And Sokka, you know, is, you know, being the warrior and really macho and like, wow, who are you? And all this stuff. And then when he is, his blindfold is removed and he sees that he was captured by a group of girls, um, he is like appalled and immediately insults them. And that, that comes my favorite line in the episode comes then when Katara's like, don't hurt him. My brother's just an idiot sometimes. (laughs) I also wrote that down. (laughs) And so that was my favorite line of the episode. Um, so he's really insulting and dismissive, um, of these girls and they are warriors, um, they're very feminine. Their warrior armor and such is modeled after a dress. You know, it's like a long gown. Um, they have makeup, like face makeup on, warrior slash makeup. Um, but it's, it's very like feminine. somewhere in the realm of kabuki, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Kyoshi's very clearly kind of modeled on Japan. 
Um, yeah. Like, the architecture and everything is very clearly Japan, and the makeup is somewhat similar to, like, Kabuki theater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. And, and, you know, and clearly feminine. They have fans that are their weapons. Um, you know, so they're warriors, and they kick ass, but they're still women. They're still feminine. Um and so, you know, Sokka immediately insults them, dismisses them, you know, whatever is horrific. And eventually goes back and literally grovels. Literally gets down on his hands and knees and apologizes and, and does a true apology. So <laughs> I have this whole big thing now in adulthood about like actual apologies and what actual apologies are and how you give a proper apology and everything. And like an apology is not just saying, I'm sorry. You have to acknowledge what you did was wrong. You have to show like, okay, A, this is what I did. B, I understand that it was wrong for these reasons. And C, I'm sorry for doing it. You can't just skip right to C and say, you know, oh, I'm sorry without going through the A and B stages. Um, and Sokka does. He's like, I shouldn't have done this. You know, this was horrible. I was wrong. Gets down on his hands and knees and actually grovels and wants them to teach them because he admits that they are superior warriors to him and he wants to learn from them. Um, and Suki tells him that, um, okay, we will teach you, but you have to, you know, honor all of our traditions and do what we say. And that includes wearing the dress and the makeup, um, which Sokka does. And with a plum, I would say, uh, mm -hmm, he does. <laughs> and, and there are, you know, you can tell like he's not super psyched about it, but he doesn't say anything, um, derogatory about it. And at one point, Aang kind of runs by and, you know, makes a comment, and Sokka just is kind of like, huh. <laughs> and then at, at the end of the episode, um, when the Fire Nation has come and they're, they're calling the warriors to come fight, someone runs by. And I can't remember what he says exactly, but I think he says, like, you know, come on, girls, or something like that. And Sokka starts to say, wait, I'm not a... And then he's like, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> like, 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 asserting my masculinity in this moment is not as important as getting out there and protecting this village, which I feel like 99% of the other shows would have had him finish that sentence and say, I'm not a girl like, and then kind of like run after them or whatever. Um, and the fact that he didn't, that he was like, wait, I'm not a, and then he was like, you know what? <laughs> we, we don't have time for this. this I got is not more the, important things to do. Yeah. Like this is not the most important thing going on right now. My fragile male ego is not <laughs> like the main important thing happening right now. Um, and then it wraps up later where Suki and Sokka are having a, you know, conversation. And he's like, I can't remember again, the exact quote, but essentially he's like, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I treated you like a girl when actually you're a warrior. And Suki's like, I am a warrior, but I'm a girl too. And th like that idea that I can be both of those things, they're not mutually exclusive and that you can be feminine and be strong and be brave and be a warrior. Um, it just, Oh, I just love it. I, everything about it is wonderful. <laughs> 
What I loved about so, this is, well, I think this is more than about Aang. I actually think this is this episode's about Sokka. I think this is an yes. episode to showcase Sokka's character growth more than Aang. Um, mm-hmm. Aang's kind of the vehicle into this, but this is really about Sokka's character growth. Um, I also love that he grovels. Um, of course, in traditional Eastern cultures, that's not actually seen as groveling when you get down and touch true, your head to true. the floor. It's just acknowledging that who you're speaking to is superior to you. Right. Um, but I also like that he does it unprompted. It's not like Katara goes up to him and, he, and is like, you're being a moron. Right. He's just kind of like standing there outside and he's just thinking about it and thinking about it. And he knows that he's wrong and then he mans up and admits it. And I think that to me is like what part of the mm-hmm. reason I love Sokka so much. Um, yes. Because I do compare him a lot to Ron from Ron Weasley from Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> and I call Ron Weasley a fuck boy because <laughs> he is. <laughs> I timed that perfectly, didn't I, Kelly? <laughs> oh, wow. My, uh, my vodka almost went all over the, uh, the microphone there. Woo. Ron Weasley. Ron Weasley. Fuckboy. He is. Apparently, this is not a clean podcast. No. This is explicit. This is explicit. That's okay. (laughs) Good to know. Anyway, I call Ron Weasley a fuckboy for many reasons, but a lot of the things is Ron is very casually chauvinist, and it bothers me a lot, and no one actually ever calls him on his chauvinism. Sokka is very similar. He does, he's very casually chauvinist. Like, it doesn't come from a place of malice or any real belief that, you know, he's superior to girls. It's, you know, you assume because all the men are gone, he hasn't had exactly a great model of manhood to model himself on. You know, so he's kind of cobbled all these myths and ideas and his own idea of what a man should be because he's kind of the only one left in his tribe. So he's kind of casually chauvinist. And I like that the show not only calls him out on it, but also makes him acknowledge that he's being a chauvinist from his own sense of growth, not like, you know, somebody nagging at him or something. And it, you know, it doesn't feel like it comes from Sokka. This generally comes from Sokka being like, no, I done fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. What about you, Mike? What did you think of this plot line? Um, I... I was focusing a lot more, I I think maybe just because I've seen it many times, um, I was focusing a lot more on sort of background characters and, like, throwaway things. Um, Oh my god, the visual (laughs) comedy of this episode is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good. Um, Even just, like, a few of the lines color color the scenes in really nicely. Um, When the Aang is being chased around by, like, a little fan club of little girls, and one of them keeps calling him Angie. (laughs) which just gets right up under my skin. Like, oh, God, please don't do that. Um, The, oh, the foaming at the mouth guy. Yes, foamy mouth guy. I noticed him, too. When he does the marble trick. Oh, so good. Yeah, and he just faints, and yeah. And also, I mean, this this isn't really a spoiler. I'm kind of stepping on a joke that you won't remember in a million years from now, but that marble trick shows up like in a photograph in Legend of Korra there's just like yes in, in the background of a scene there's a photo of Aang like doing that to a piece of sushi yeah exactly no, but moreover it's not young Aang it's grown up Aang right, right. <laughs> doing the exact same that's amazing trick. that's amazing 
Oh, one thing I wanted to say that's totally unrelated, but if we're talking about like weird minutia in the episode, so in the very opening scene or one of the opening scenes, you know, Aang is riding the koi fish and he's got on, you know, like a bathing suit, like shorts or whatever, whatever. The animation of him riding that koi fish is the creepiest thing I've ever seen because he is the most ripped 12 year old (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. And it's really disturbing the way (laughs) that he's drawn. He has like a six pack and like weird, like it's just, it's very, it's very weird. That scene in general (laughs) was kind of strange because once the Unagi shows up and he's running on the water, suddenly it becomes like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. You know, where there's, like, weird noises happening as he's yeah, splashing like around. Yeah, like, weird, and... stretchy animation. Yeah. It was kind of strange, like... Because, look, sometimes Japanese animation could be very surreal, and it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. But, like, it felt a little bit out of place, especially as, the, as I mentioned before, the visual uh, visual comedy of the rest of the episode is so good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, the scene where he's being chased by the fangirls in one direction over the bridge... And then the next direction over the bridge. And then he's approached from both sides. Or like the guy painting the, the portrait of the Avatar. Oh, right. And he people starts with one little girl. And, adjust, and yeah. people keep showing yeah, up. Yeah, and every time he looks up from the painting, and there's more and more people there. Um, just like so many little things I think are so great. And like things that he do- that Aang is doing in the background of like the Sokka scenes are also hilarious. Um so it's like the kind of visual humor in this episode, I think, is pretty fantastic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love Suki the most. And if she never comes back, I'm going to be pissed. I'm, I will admit I'm angry that um, she didn't just go with them. Because kind of the way that it seemed like it was going is that they were just going to pick up a new person every place they stopped, you know? Um, and so I just thought that she was like gonna go with them and she didn't and I was really sad about it oh well (laughs) (laughs) oh well not knowing yep yeah we have have knowledge to hold over your head sorry oh yeah yeah we're gonna just hold it over your head for a while I hope you're okay with that (laughs) um when Aang tried to go back for the Unagi and like nearly drowned and Katara like did this like one-handed push and shot them onto the shoreline and drew the water out of his lungs like little stuff like that I really like that really charges me up of like oh this is how these things are functional you know like this is what these things yeah. look like in movement yeah that was really cool even with when Aang, Aang picks up a set of fans at the end when there's that big fight scene with the um, Fire Nation and he's just like whipping the air around like knocking the crap out of people and then he gets rid of them for some reason, and I wrote down in my notes, I'm like, hang on to the damn fans, but he, like, runs off and gets his glider or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> I have a few, like, minor trivia notes. I'm pretty sure that the instrument in the background is either a koto or a shamisen. I think it's a koto. It's a Japanese instrument. Um, so that kind of orchestration that you hear is definitely Japanese-inspired. Another thing, when Sokka goes to introduce himself to the Kyoshi Warriors for the first time, and he's like, ah, yeah, you know, there's, like, place to work out, right? Um, and he's, like, bending over, and his, like, tunic flaps up. You can see the stitches Katara put <laughs> oh. into the backside of his pants. 
<laughs> and it's that's like awesome. a tiny little detail <laughs> that I really loved. <laughs> that's amazing. I don't think I noticed that. Yep, yep. That I only noticed it this time around, but I was like, hey. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it for me. Um, you guys have anything else for an, on this particular episode? Um, just that they introduce... I don't think they... Had they shown the rhinos before? No, they hadn't. Okay, so, like, that's mm-hmm. an introduction of an animal species. Yeah, other than that, I just wrote down that, like, it's nice to be... Like, nice that we've agreed to do this because... Uh, if I went to watch rewatch any of the show, I probably wouldn't rewatch all of it. I would just find like yeah, your oh, favorite there's my episodes, favorite yeah. exactly yeah, and this is nice. Like I get to see all the little details that I would have otherwise missed or you know have totally forgotten about because they're not huge plot points. Oh, also yeah. unagi is Japanese for eel, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. It is delicious. Place. It is delicious. <laughs> Isn't it also that thing on Friends that Ross does? When he's like, Unagi, the, no, maybe not. <laughs> I will admit to you, I have never I seen s- a full episode of Friends. You're not really, like, if you've seen a part of one episode, you've seen enough. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it is what That's it is. True. Like, I, I, I mean, like, I enjoy it on a level of, like, if it was ever, like, on reruns, I would watch while I was doing other stuff. But I never, I never watched it when it was in syndication. But I'm pretty sure there's, like, a weird Ross Geller thing about Unagi. I don't know. Anyway. That sounds like the kind of word that, that was awkward. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> Moving um, on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh real quick. Um, <laughs> I just want to touch on... Uh, Last week, we didn't even get to this until we were done recording, that um, Dante Basco, who plays uh, Zuko, is also Rufio from uh, Hook, the movie Hook. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, um, sorry, here, Um, Mae Whitman, who does the voice of, I just want to real quick, like, rattle off, like, a couple of the characters, because I think it's worth worth mentioning. Um, Mae Whitman, who does the voice of uh, Katara, is probably the most... She probably has the most credits to her name, aside from maybe the voice of Iroh, because he's, like, old as hell. Um, but she has, like, an amazing <laughs> career. She, like, she started out, she was the little kid in um, Independence Day. She was in Scott Pilgrim. She's currently doing the voice of April O'Neil on a Ninja Turtles cartoon. She was also in Arrested Development. Yes, she was. She was one of my favorite parts of Arrested yeah, Development. Same. <laughs> She was, uh, Kelly, I don't know if you watched it, but she was like George Michael's girlfriend who was so plain that every time she walked into a room or he like introduced uh, her around, somebody would be like, really? Her? Is she she funny? (laughs) Yeah. No, No, you should also watch Arrested Development. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mae Whitman is definitely been in a lot of different things. I actually first saw her in Arrested Development. That's how I know her. So. Oh, she was also a voice... I mean, she's done loads of voice acting, but she was a voice in uh, Kingdom Hearts 2 and Final Fantasy 7 something or other, um, where she played Yuffie. Mm. Hmm. She's also developing the Royal We with Lauren Graham. That's what I recognize the name from. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but okay. <laughs> it's Kate <laughs> and Will fanfic published, yeah, essentially. It's, it's Prince William and Duchess Kate fanfic. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> okay. But really great, like funny and sure, smart. Sure, why but, not? You know, the, still. the best of that kind of fanfic. 
Exactly. It's, I mean, it's not, it's published. It's like real, it's a book. It's great. I like it. So moving on to episode five. Before I start the recap for this episode, I wanted to ask you guys. So when we first started this read this project where I was going to watch all of Avatar and, um, we did. We do not talk much about any of this off the podcast. We we pretty much don't discuss this with one another um, anytime except for when we're recording. So um, occasionally, you guys have asked me questions, or I've mentioned that I've watched a certain episode, but we don't. We uh, we're kind of really getting into all of our thoughts live as we record this. But when I first started watching Avatar, I had kind of mentioned to you guys, either via text or online or something, um, you know, that I was like, kind of like, this is kind of not really super, not super into it. And both of you said that there was going to be a certain episode that you thought was going to change that for me. And was that episode five? Well, that was the one I said where I was kind of like, yeah, I'm in now, you know, because okay, the first three were definitely, you know, parts kind of like one, two, and three, where they kind of needed to get all this exposition out of the way to kind of mm-hmm. give you a setup. And then episode four is not plot-heavy in any, like, overarching sense, and it's more of a character study for Sokka. And I wouldn't say that number five is particularly plot-heavy either, um, but there's something about the humor of that episode that really got me. And I laughed my ass off. I laughed my ass off too. <laughs> For some reason, <laughs> I find I find this one hilarious. <laughs> okay, so I fell asleep watching this one. <laughs> <laughs> We're like laughing our Twice. asses off, and you're snoring. <laughs> Twice. I fell asleep. I woke up. I caught the very end. I said, "Crap." I pushed it off for another day. The next day I put it on. I fell asleep again. <laughs> I have not fallen asleep during any other episodes of Avatar. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was just this episode. I don't know if I was just really tired that weekend. I'm always really tired, so that could be it. I fell asleep twice, you guys. And I feel like part of the beauty of this episode was spoiled because I fell asleep and then I woke up. And I woke up at the very end when the king, when, when Aang is finding out he names the king. And so I was like, oh, that's that guy from the beginning. And so (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of like spoiled myself for the episode. I don't know. So I'm going to go through, we're going to do my, uh, my little recap, which, um, yeah, but yeah, I wanted to put that out there (laughs) from the beginning. So (laughs) I, I may not have that much to discuss on this one. I have seen it all the way through. Finally, I did go back and actually watch it, but most, yeah, um, I'm here for you guys. This is, you know, I'm committed. Um, but normally I watch each episode like two or three times, and I I technically had this one on two or three times, but I, I was only awake for like one of them. Uh, okay, so this is episode five. This is The King of Omashu. Um, yet another detour on the way to the North Pole, this time to the Earth Kingdom city of Omashu. There, Aang shows Katara and Sokka the Omashu shoot mail delivery system, which he and his friend Bumi, it is Bumi, right? Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Used to ride 
for fun a hundred years ago. The trio gives the shoots a try, but runs into trouble after it destroys a cabbage merchant's cart. Put, <laughs> put in front. Yeah, that's it. I don't get it. I was asleep. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, you will get it's it not, this yeah. episode. You'll get it later. <laughs> I mean, you've pretty much seen fr- the cabbage guy do everything he's going to do, but like, it's still funny every time. <laughs> like, he, he kind of is... Talk about being the butt of a joke or a show. Uh, it's really the Cabbage Man. <laughs> For sure. And you just see him later and something always happens to him where he's like, my cabbages! <laughs> it's, and he's like not a ma- major character at all, but yeah, it's, it, yeah. This is the first oh, time you see him, so. Yeah, like that's okay. the only spoiler I'm, I, I feel comfortable giving you. We're going to see Cabbage Guy Again. <laughs> Again, yeah. <laughs> All right. Hopefully I'll be awake next time. Uh, <laughs> so they destroy cab- the cabbage merchant's cart. Uh, put in front of the crazy king of the city, the gang is given a feast. The king suspects that Aang is the avatar and puts him through three el- deadly challenges to test his skills. After the last challenge, Aang is forced to figure out the king's name, and based on the nature of the challenges, he realizes that the king is his old friend, Bumi. Bumi informs Aang of what his task as the current avatar entails. And then my first note is, I don't know, you guys, I fell asleep. (laughs) It's my first note. So there was, so, so I, I fell asleep and, and that sucks. Um, but I have seen this episode, and so this was our first real introduction to earth bending and earth kingdom. So, rewinding a, a little bit, is the island of Kyoshi, is that an earth kingdom? Yeah, it's an it earth is, kingdom, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they don't really Do cover they... it, um, but Kyoshi is an earthbender. Okay. Yeah, in the because... cycle of the avatars, she was earth. Right, because yeah, and they said that, and so that's where I was kind of like, oh, and then I, I think the, I think later on the colors that a lot of the people wore kind of come back later on as we go through other Earth Kingdom places, and so I kind of thought that, but I don't know, I wasn't sure. So this is definitely an Earth Kingdom, and this is the first example we see of Earth bending, um, and the part of the episode that sticks out most strongly in my mind because I was awake for it multiple times um is when Aang you know is being given all these challenges and he is allowed to choose someone to fight and he chooses the king thinking like oh he's old and frail and whatever and then of course he like rips off his robes and he's like this disturbingly body built (laughs) old man um I wrote down oh, King in- Crazy Muscles. <laughs> yeah, like, really intense. Um, and so he is, of course, like, the most badass earthbender. Um, and a lot of his style of fighting is, like, he'll, like, stomp and this, like, boulder of earth will shoot up and he'll, like, kick and shoot the boulder across it's really physical like kind of in the way that firebending is physical but also kind of different and I know that it's based on a different style and so I'm sure that that um you know is even more true than just my limited um you know knowledge or experience or what I can glean just from watching it but it was pretty cool it was again one of the only other offensive use 
of bending that we've really seen. You know, when Aang and Katara have used their bending in battle so far, it's been really defensive. It's been about, you know, stopping their enemies or, you know, scattering their enemies or protecting themselves. But it hasn't really been offensive in the way that um, Fire Nation firebending has been. Um, and that this example of earthbending has been, it was really aggressive and physical. And I thought it was really cool. I really liked, um, that fight scene quite a bit. Yeah. The fighting that, um, earthbenders do is, is, it looks a lot like underhanded throwing or cross country skiing. There's a lot of like that to, it, it visually draws up from the ground. They, they do a lot of, uh, rooted stances. I think the style is Hungar is I think what it's called. But yeah. I don't Hungar. Know, I don't, I don't know it outside of this show. Like this is the this is how I became familiar with it. Yeah, it's Hungar Kung Fu. Um, and it's exactly that. There's a lot of rooted stances. You kind mm-hmm. of take a rooted stance and then kind of very strong punches and kicks. Um, whereas like firebending, it's not quite the same. They don't have that rooted stance. They're much more kind of swift kicks and punches. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's definitely the style of of earth like earthbending. It makes sense because you know you're. It does, yeah, the rootedness. And you can even see the difference in the firebending because, like Iroh says, he says that the firebending is about breath and not muscle, and I can actually see that in the way that it's animated and the way that it's, like, it it does definitely seem to be, like, a big intake of breath and then an exhalation, like, some kind of an internal... It's like it's not the strength of the muscle that you're putting behind it. It's like that's other intention. I don't, I mean, again, I'm not an expert in this, but I could tell the difference between fire and earthbending in the animation. Um, I mean, of course one is shooting fire and one's shooting boulders, but you know, (laughs) so another thing that, mm, you know what, I'm going to save that for another episode. I'm going to save that comment for later. Um, so yeah, I thought that fight scene was really cool. Um, I feel like if I hadn't fallen asleep in this episode, it would have been really cool to see Aang, like, figure out who this crazy king is, that it's actually his friend from so long ago. But since I literally fell asleep at the point where he was like, oh, hey, Boomy, let's ride this mail chute. And then I woke up and he was like, you're Boomy. And I was like, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Great. Sounds good. Um I feel like obviously the impact of that was unfortunately lost in my viewing experience, but it does make me really happy that someone from Aang's past was still alive. Yeah. <laughs> he got to reconnect with a person that he actually knows. Um, I thought that was really, I'm really glad that he got to have that. Yeah, I mean, this episode I tend to think of as this is really showing off Aang's trickster side. Because mm-hmm. um, I know you slept through all the tasks, but he's given... I mean, I went back and watched them again. Right. <laughs> but, you know, he's given three tasks by Boomy to solve. Um, and the way Aang goes, goes about them, and when he successfully solves them, is when he approaches them sideways. Mm-hmm. when he doesn't really do it sort of the way you're expected to. And um, that's partially because that's what Boomy tells him to do or implies that he should do. You think like a mad genius. or But I think it's also just Aang. Like, even when you see him fight Boomy in the end, 
what Aang is mostly doing is avoiding and kind of going around things. And that's just kind of the way Aang is as a person. He's kind of avoidant as, as you know, he doesn't like to be directly offensive. He, you know, so he kind of approaches things on like a more of a trickster level. So I think this episode kind of shows a bit, kind of implies this is going to be important for Aang in the future. The way mm-hmm. he's going to approach problems is, is not the obvious straight on way he's going to do it sideways. Um, and also I just thought this episode was hilarious. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. I did. <laughs> There is something about, like, they show up to the gates, and he's like, I'm so a pippin papa or something. Uh, hang on, I wrote it down. It's <laughs> pippin Patalopsicopolis, which yes. no one else has trouble with at all yeah. in the rest of the episode. <laughs> Everyone just says, gets it right on the first time. Yep. Um, and I just love that it's, like, this East Asian world, and then all of a sudden this, like, fake Greek last name comes right. into it, and no one blinks. It's just like, okay. Um... And then it's like Katara just shows up. She's like, "Yeah, I'm June, Pippin Pot, like Pippin Pot and Lasca, some other." It's like that. And then when they get to Boomy, and it's just the sense of humor of this episode that just makes me laugh really hard. Where like he makes a really bad pun, and then someone off screen just goes, <coughs> "Yep." <laughs> <laughs> and that cough. <laughs> like anytime someone makes a bad joke, and then <coughs> like off screen. Killed me every time it happened. I don't and know why. And then, like why. a beat later, Sokka would break out laughing. Yes. Like, oh, so good. Or just like even stupid things like lettuce leaf. Right. <laughs> I was just like, why is this funny to me? I don't know why it's funny to me, but it's hilarious to me. Or the conversation about the um, the dungeon that used to be the bad yeah. dungeon, but now take him to the refurbished room that was once bad. Yeah. <laughs> just like. I don't know why, but it just, it made me laugh. It really did. It it got, it got to me. Yeah, I think plot-wise there's not a lot. I mean, there's, there's cool things that you see in the Kingdom of Amashu, like the whole mail chute system. Like, they're doing it by earthbending. They pull these things along with earthbending, and they got this, like, sophisticated mail chute system. Um... So it's, like, kind of just, like, cool throwaway things, and, um, but yeah, I just, this one made me laugh. This one really did. <laughs> there were a few little, like, character things that they, they threw away, but are, I feel like are important. Uh, I think they did officially confirm that he's 112. They said that out yep, loud. they mm-hmm. did. They said, they said that Aang's a vegetarian. He doesn't eat, eat meat, which is significant, I feel like, to his character and, you know, airbending and whatever. Um, what do I have? The Creeping Crystal. I just wanted to have rock candy after that. This yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anytime they bring up food, I'm just like, I want that. Yep. Oh, the music. The music during that, um, the slide, you know, down the mail chute <laughs> thing. Um, I, I was listening to it with my headphones on because I was watching on my computer, and I don't think I've ever done that before, but, like, there's... <laughs> There's, like, a voice track underneath the music, which the music is already, like, rambunctious, and, like, we're getting up to shenanigans. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, there's a voice track underneath it that's just going, like, dum dig dum dig dum like, <laughs> the entire time. And I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. 
this show when this show does something well, it does something well. <laughs> yeah. Also, Momo has a theme song. I don't know if you guys have noticed. No. The lemurs do. They have like do 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 do. Oh, right on those horns. Right? Yeah, that yeah. like funky. And then when so when Momo is like super stuffed and like really f- like his stomach's distended and everything, you hear that same theme but slow. Like do 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 do. It's like oh right, because he can't fit through the pipe or whatever they're trying to jam him in. <laughs> so there's a lot of little funny details. I think. No, I mean, like, the first time I saw this episode, I definitely laughed pretty hard. But, like, on subsequent viewings, it definitely, like, little details definitely leap out that I didn't notice the first time around that made me laugh pretty hard. Yeah, at the end when he had to guess Boomy's name, and Sokka was like, Rocky, because of <laughs> all the rocks. And that got another cough from off screen. <laughs> yes. Oh, so good. <laughs> or like he's like, you know, he's like old and Boomy's like, Well, who are you calling old? Oh yeah, I'm old. <laughs> it's just like right. little yeah. things. <laughs> it's like now it's like, what how do I look? Now be honest. And he's like, Good, you've passed the first test. Oh, so good. <laughs> oh, one cool thing I thought, uh during the fight between Boomy and Aang, um, Boomy actually says, sooner or later you're going to have to strike back, which is a counter to what his lesson has been all along, like, don't take this head on, like, come at it from a different angle, and B, as far as I know, Bagua doesn't have any strikes, like, it's it's maybe the only entirely defensive fighting style, which he still uses, like, he just redirects one of Boomy's, you know, giant rock things that he throws at him. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, that's, that's the way airbending is, and that's the way Aang is, both... Physically and, I think, in a personality, he's more defensive and tends to go around things. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's pretty good. Alright, is that all we got to say on the King of Amashu? Um, oh, one, one thing real quick. Um, the uh, Flopsy was the name of the animal that <laughs> King Bumi wanted. Um, so, all of the animals, Flopsy included, and Momo and Appa, are voiced by um, a guy named D. Bradley Baker who, he's one of these, like, storied, you know, voice actors. He's in everything, pretty much. But he is famous for, like, being able to just produce Animal noises, yeah. Yeah, that, like, don't make sense, like, from a human. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but there's a there's a documentary that's really good on Netflix called I Know That Voice, where... Yes, I love that documentary. Yeah, it's so, so good. Uh, John DiMaggio, who does the voice of Bender on Futurama and about a million others, because he's one of those guys, he just went around and interviewed every voice actor he could find. Um, and during it, Dee Bradley Baker is, like, giving a lesson on opening different pipes in your nose and, like... <laughs> extending your chest and controlling the breath. I mean, he's really got a handle on all that stuff. And you can hear it when he's like Appa and Momo. I have to watch that because it has always been like my secret uh, ambition to do voice work, but I've never done it. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, watch the documentary. You'll feel like you're right there. I will. But yeah, I think that's, this is the episode I think that I have the least commentary on unfortunately i think to be fair it's the same with me i just like it yeah <laughs> it's just one yeah, i just mostly, enjoy mostly i just wrote down funny moments and like lines and stuff at the end boomy's like it's pretty fun messing with people yep yep <laughs> 
Oh, and we got one last cabbages, like, during, right before the end credits. Right before the end credits. (laughs) Oh, cabbage guy. I mean, if you're also around Avatar fandom, um, foamy mouth guy is someone you see a lot. Kind of turn up. Um, I don't know if he shows up in this show again, but, like, people just, like, anytime there's, like, a fangirl gif needed, um, you, you get foamy mouth guy from the wars of (laughs) Kyoshi. And then people who cosplay as cabbage guy in like all of the conventions, it's like my favorite thing ever. Is that a thing? I didn't even it know. It is that was a thing. thing. It's a totally a thing. People go and they cosplay as the cabbage guy and they just like go around with like iceberg or like whatever the cabbage is and they're just like posing. My cabbages, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I don't have much to say about this either, just that I really liked it. It's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm done with this one. Cool. Let's move on. This is our final episode for our, um, yeah, our final episode for this podcast. This is episode six, titled Imprisoned. Aang, Katara, and Sokka camp near a small Earth Kingdom town that is controlled by the Fire Nation, which bans earthbending. Katara convinces a young earthbender named Haru to save an old man with earthbending, only to have Haru captured by the soldiers as the old man turns him in. Katara devises a plan to get herself arrested so Aang and Sokka can follow her to where Haru was taken and liberate him. While at the prison, a metal sea fortress that is impervious to earthbending... Aang and Katara incite a rebellion with an inspiring speech and the realization that coal is susceptible to earthbending. The imprisoned earthbenders manage to liberate themselves and return to their occupied cities. And I should say that that uh, summary is lifted wholesale from Wikipedia, whereas the, <laughs> uh, the other ones I wrote myself, but that one was lifted from Wikipedia because I was running out of time. <laughs> But that, um, but that is essentially um, a pretty good summary of what happens in this episode. Um, so I did not fall asleep during this one, fully awake the whole time. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a, a lot of notes on this one, and some of them are about, you know, the content and the story that we get, and then some of them are about the execution of the story. Um, so this episode really focuses on Katara. Um, you know, if we had the previous episode was kind of about Aang and the way he approaches things, you know, from the side, the episode before that kind of focused on Sokka and his character growth. This is really an episode that focuses on Katara and it focused on a characteristic that she has that we've seen before in that she just rushes in headlong to save people. Um, and I, I think I mostly mean that in a positive way, although I can see how it could become a problem later on, um, potentially if the show goes down that route. But, um, you know, she just has this heart that is just so open. And if you think about, you know, even in the pilot episode, when that iceberg comes up and Aang is trapped inside of it. And Sokka is really cautious, and he's really like, whoa, this is weird, what is this? And she just kind of, like, flings herself at it and starts hacking away to let him free, you know? And then when Aang goes on the Fire Nation ship, she's like, we have to go get him. Like, she is just constantly rescuing people and needs to 
save them and connect with them and help them and empower them. Um, and it's just kind of this main nurturing, um, kind of quality that she has, which is great. And we see that here kind of in full force. She meets Haru. They all, um, so they like open up in their, that Sokka has gone off to gather food. And also, can I just tell you how amazing it is that Sokka is the one to go off and gather food and not <laughs> Katara? Because he didn't go out to hunt, or if he did go to hunt, he came back empty-handed. He went out to gather, which is, you know, traditionally women's work. Uh, <laughs> but Sokka is the one who uh, went out and did it with apparently no complaints and came back with nuts and or possibly rocks, depending. <laughs> that rock gag with Momo hitting it on the ground, that killed me. That's like that thing from Indiana Jones, like where the librarian is standing and he's yes. like smashing the floor. Yeah, it was really great. It was really funny. Um, so they're all, you know, they're there and they're kind of bummed about their dinner prospects. Um, and... You know, Katara immediately rushes out and is like, hey, <laughs> how are you? And they stumble on Haru, who's doing this earthbending. Uh, and then he's, he sees them and he immediately turns and runs and throws up this um, rock wall between them so that they can't follow. And they're, you know, obviously confused. They don't know why. They follow him. Um, and Katara you know, just wants to talk to him and know more about him because, again, you know, it kind of reminds us that this is Aang's quest. He is the Avatar and he has this destiny that he has to fulfill, but Katara also has a stake in this in that she wants to learn how to become a proper bender and that going to the North Pole to learn how to waterbend um, is something that she cares about a lot on a personal level. And so anytime she comes across... A bender, she's immediately drawn to them because she she wants to know if she can learn from them or talk to them or you know she's always interested in meeting other benders, um, and she very quickly learns that this family doesn't you know isn't proud of his bending abilities, doesn't want to advertise it, doesn't want to make a big thing out of it, and she really naively doesn't understand why. Um, and then when it's explained to her, and this I thought was really great too. And again, like, as we've mentioned before, pretty dark because, yeah. Yeah. you know, they kind of say, she's like, oh, well, why wouldn't you want anyone to know that you're an earthbender? And they say, well, because we're an occupied village, we're occupied by the Fire Nation and they, you know, don't want anybody to be benders and, you know, whatever. And she's like, well, you know, what's like, what's the worst thing they can do? Come on. And they're like, well, they could take him away like they took his dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, wow. OK. Um, you know, so it's, it's I mean, it's pretty dark. Um, I'm trying to like not I'm trying to untangle all my thoughts so that I don't get super ahead of myself in any one thing. But, um, she is an intuitive, you know, and I think this probably comes with being a waterbender because this is kind of the, um, 
all of the elements, you know, have characteristics that are typically associated with them. And water tends to be emotional and intuitive and, um, you know, nurturing and all these things. And I know this because I'm a cancer and I'm a water sign. <laughs> <And> these, are, <laughs> these are very much characteristics that I identify with and see um, in both positives and definitely negatives in my own personal life. And so I get it. Um, you know, and, and Katara can see the conflict in Haru that he wants to be a bender and can't be a bender. And she even says really eloquently, you know, not allowing him to be a bender is like cutting off a piece of himself. You're denying him access to who he really is. And we've had, we've discussed on the podcast and the show has, um, alluded to the fact that, water bending is it requires some kind of a spiritual connection all bending mm-hmm. yeah yeah i'm sorry did i say a specific kind i meant bending in general um requires a specific connection um you know whether it's air or earth or whatever and she you know is pretty much explicitly stating that here like by suppressing this ability or not allowing him to be who he truly is um you're you're actually causing true damage and pain to him as a result of that. Um, which again is a pretty big concept for a children's show. Like this is really, um, detailed and nuanced stuff that I, I mean, I think in general they're handling really well. Um, and it's, I'm impressed by that, but that they're, one, I'm impressed that they're handling this kind of subject matter at all. And two, I'm impressed because I really do think that for the most part, they are giving it um, a decent amount of weight and importance and um, respect in the way that they handle it throughout the narrative. So I really like that. And that was kind of unexpected um, from a children's show. Um And then again, when, you know, so the main mechanism of the plot is kind of that there's, you know, she and Haru are having, you know, some um, private conversations that are, you know, romantically tinged. (laughs) I think they're kind of drawn and framed and um, in such a way that, you know, it's it's meant to be somewhat romantic. And um, as they're off together, there is an avalanche that traps and injures an old man. They're trying to save him and they can't. And so she convinces Haru to use his earthbending to save this person. And she's really, you know, um, very insistent about it. Um, and you can tell, I think that he, like, he probably had thought about it and thought about it and knew that it was a possible solution, but he's not the one suggesting it. Katara is, she's like, you have the power to save this person and you have to do it. Like (laughs) you have to do what is right. Um, so he does. And, the old man betrays him, um, which again, complicated thing for a kid's show. <laughs> yeah, that old guy sucks. They should have left him under the dirt. Yeah, but like, but that's a comp, like, that is honestly really complicated. And they never, they never come back and blame him. Like, obviously, in the minute, in the moment as you're watching it, you're like, oh, this old guy sucks. But it's like Haru's mother, no one ever blames the old man for what happened explicitly, unless I'm misremembering that. No, she doesn't. No, you're right. Well, the thing is, it shows you exactly what it's like to live under an oppressive culture. Exactly. 
they're being oppressed and they can't express themselves or be who they are fully. And when they are, everyone, you know, they're complicit in their own oppression. I hate to say it like that, but they are. Yeah. You know, there's, and it it, it ties back to when they get to the ship and Katara's there with like her first inspiring speech and (laughs) just dead silence. Crickets. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fell on deaf ears. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't even punish her. The Fire yeah. Nation doesn't even, you know, drag her off and punish her for trying to incite a riot because they're like, we don't even have to bother. It is so pointless what you're trying to do. I thought that scene with um, uh, the morning after um, Haru gets taken, Katara, like, draws water out of the well without, you know, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. you know, she, she, what's happening? Yeah, she, oh. like, bends oh, the yeah, water yeah. to yeah, come yeah. out. Yeah, she water, she water bends water out of the well and... And then, like, looks up holding this pot of water and sees Haru's mother just, like, crying. And the pot shatters. You know, she drops it, shatters. It's like, that's all the conversation you needed for that for that situation was none at all. And it was perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. I just yeah. thought it was so effective. I was like, wow, this is, like, for no dialogue, this is an incredibly well-executed moment. Yeah, there's a lot of... In- yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this episode. I feel like this episode is really packed to the point where I almost think it could have been a two-parter. Um, and given some of this stuff space to breathe a little bit, because one of the notes that I have about the execution of it is that the pacing is really weird and the cuts are really weird. I feel like the, the edits, the cuts from scene to scene are coming like on the heels of the very last syllable that comes out of anyone's mouth. It's like, normally you'd like let them finish the sentence and there'd be like a breath there or like a pause before you like switch to the next one. And it's immediate. It's like, it's like, I feel like they haven't even finished speaking sometimes and it's like cut off, but it's not a deliberate, like sometimes you'll see like a deliberate, the last line will trail over the next scene as a way to transition. It's not, it's not a deliberate choice like that. It's like they have so much to do. They're just cutting shit immediately to get to the next thing. So the pacing was a little bit weird to me um, and kind of jarring. But yeah, so Katara, once, you know, Haru is betrayed and taken off by the Fire Nation, she is, you know, immediately feels responsible and is like, I am gonna go after him. We have to save him. This is my fault. Um, you know, and again, then once they get there, it's not enough. Just, you know, she's like, we have to save all these people, you know, something's going to happen. The second half of the episode is where I feel like there's some weird stuff going on that just, I feel like we get a little bit into this thing of where the writers know where they want things to end up. And so they just kind of force stuff to like go where it needs to be to get them to their end point. This whole thing where Katara is going to fake being an earthbender deliberately to get arrested um, so that she can follow through. Fine. Like I get the plan, but why are you faking being an earthbender? Why not just bend water? They'll take you. But I understand that it's because they want to demonstrate this air vent thing with Aang so that later on when they do it on the ship, you're like, oh, you know, they're like, it just seems really like just clunky to me. Um, It's kind of funny when it's 
happening because there's a lot of humor in this episode. I laughed aloud actually for the first time while watching the show during this episode. Um, well, if you hadn't fallen asleep for the last one. Well, no. appa- apparently the last one was really funny, so I guess I'll have to go back and watch <laughs> it but and try not to fall asleep this time. But, you know, when, when they're faking that um, she's bending and Aang finally gets with the program and, um, you know, sends Earth the air current style. through the vent. And they think it's the lemur. They think it's Momo. <laughs> and they're like, on right, bending right. lemur. But it's not. <laughs> um, and Sokka just be like, no, the girl. Like... The way it's animated, too, I think it's hilarious. It's really great. Yeah, and their fight, just how it escalates, and at some point Sokka's like, okay, really, lay off. And she just, like, keeps going in this really... And you have the ears, it's, like, getting really personal for Sokka, and he's just like, oh. (laughs) I know, it's really funny. And then there's also a lot of comedy later with the Fire Nation guards, who are just... I can't remember the... I know the scene ends with... Um, I can't, I can't remember his name, but the head, the warden, essentially, of the prison, the head guy. Um, George Takei. Yeah. Oh, is that really him? That's great. Oh, come on. How could you not recognize, (laughs) I talk like this? True. True. Yeah. (laughs) It is very obvious in hindsight. The one thing about George Takei in that episode is that most of the other voice actors sound pretty naturalistic in it, and then there's George Takei. And and you're just kind of like, wait. Totally slightly off. Um, a little bit, like, just a hair more camp than everybody else in the yeah. show. Um, I, it works for I the like character. Yeah. I think it works for the character, too, yeah. <laughs> it's the whole scene. I can't remember how the scene starts, but I know that from the beginning when it starts, I was laughing hysterically. But it's the two guards and him and George. And George throws one of them off, you know, the mm-hmm. wall and is like... Get the captain. <laughs> get someone I haven't thrown off and search for the, you know, whatever. But the whole scene, there's something the guard says in the beginning that's hilarious that now I can't remember. And of course I didn't write it in my notes. Um, Oh, they're arguing over whether they saw a bison. Yes. Or a buffalo. buffalo, And he's like, what's the difference? difference? (laughs) It was so good. I laughed so hard. It was amazing. Um, It really made me like, it was like angry in that scene too. He was like, he was yeah. like belligerent, like, well, what's the difference, you know? Yeah. Oh, it was so great. It, it made me really kind of like the Fire Nation, which is super weird, but it did. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're and, not all evil, you know, a lot of them are just like those guards, they're just kind of lackeys, and they're just like doing their job. Yeah. So here's another weird thing. So the whole mechanics of how Katara gets arrested is super weird to me, and I really just think she should have just done waterbending and got arrested for that because it just is so clunky the whole thing even if it was funny but um so you know they're taking these benders the fire nation and so i have all these thoughts because you know the fire nation is um the you know they're oppressing these people they're in this village you know it's really horrible they've murdered all of the airbenders, you know, they're going through and they're just taking over and just destroying everything. And we still don't know why, which is fine. Um, <laughs> I'm totally okay with it. Well, they told you last episode, but you fell asleep. So Damn you it. Missed it. Damn yeah. it. Um, but it, you know, so the, they are the, um, aggressive, you know, nation here. And 
they are taking all of these earthbenders. Now, there's a couple of things that are interesting about that. So they killed all the airbenders. And I guess we don't know whether or not they tried to enslave them before they killed them and it didn't work and so they just killed them or whether they didn't bother at all again we don't really know what's going on or why um well but they killed well i'm not gonna spoil you exactly and i don't know if they explicitly say it but there is a reason that they killed all the air nomads and not the earth nation okay um and i'm sure we'll get there we're still in the beginning of you know the whatever but it seems like they killed off a lot of the south water tribe and they killed off the air tribe completely um and so now they've got they're oppressing these villages of regular earth kingdom people and then their benders are being enslaved so before we get to that ship to figure out what it is exactly that is happening to these benders i you know ran through all these possible scenarios like what could they be doing with the benders because they're not just killing them i guess they could be you know they could be taking them to execute them because it's clear based on what we've already seen in previous episodes, that the Earth Kingdom um, is is probably one of the best um, of the other nations to be able to put up a real resistance, it seems like. Um, and it's also so, because the Earth, Nation is, the Earth Kingdom is huge. Yeah. Of all of the nations, it's the biggest. Yeah. And so I can see wanting to take their benders out, but... I was like, are they just going to kill them? Okay, apparently not. They're going to enslave them. But, like, why Like, why not just enslave everybody? Why just the benders? Like, there was just this whole weird thing. And then we got to the ship, and it's just like, oh, well, they're just enslaved. And they're just, like, working in this mine that's all metal. And there's, you know, they're removed entirely from any earth, so they can't use their powers. And I understand the, like, I understand the importance of getting the benders away from their people so that they can't stage a rebellion. But I just felt like, I don't know, like it just seemed like a really poor strategic move on the fire nation's part to just like use them for manual labor, especially manual labor that wasn't earth bending related. Like I I thought they were going to like have them doing their bending, but for evil purposes or something. I don't know. It seemed really weird to me that they were just working metal in this mine. And I guess it makes sense now that we know about the spiritual connection to cut them off from bending and then that further oppresses them. So it's like, I get it, but it just seems weird. I don't know. It seemed strange to me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, um, denying you a moment of rage that you'll really want to have later, but this episode, all, I mean, I, I do think the episode is effective and, and well done, but um, all I kept thinking about during this episode is the fact that um, in the movie, the live-action movie that they made out of this, they basically turned five episodes from season one into the movie. Yep. Um, the, and the it's first terrible. Two, the final two, and this one. And during th- this part of the movie, they... One of the worst changes, and there are a lot of really terrible changes that they made to that stupid friggin' movie, is that they left out the ship. They're just a bunch of earthbenders on the ground, like, being prisoner, but not fighting back. Like, that's the whole thing, is we took you away from the weapons that you can use to fight back, but in the movie they're like, eh, fuck it, we don't need to, you know, we don't need a ship. I, I, it gets me so angry every time I think about it. Well... So this is... Oh, JJ, were you going to say something about that? 
Oh, well, just, you know, the question of why they take the benders away. I mean, I don't think we have to think about it so deeply or strategically. I mean, obviously, it's a kid's show. But I think they're drawing pretty clear parallels to the Third Reich. Well, yeah. I mean, clearly, yes. Right. So they're taking people of a specific spiritual bent away specifically to concentration labor camps. It yeah. is essentially what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, what was Hitler's reason for taking over Europe? Because, right. Yeah. I right. mean, he, he had a micro penis. Yeah. There's no internal no. logic there. I guess maybe I'm just grasping at things because I don't, I, I, I keep waiting for it because it says like, oh, we used to all live kind of peacefully and then suddenly they attacked. And so I just, I'm waiting for that backstory. And I think I'm just like grasping at straws and I mean, questioning they will fill everything. In a lot of the backstory for you. Over, I'm sure they will. Series. I'm sure they but will. But at this point, you know, you've got your clear antagonist. It's the Fire Nation and mm-hmm. they're basically Nazis. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's very clear that whatever their reasons are, they're not acceptable. You know, there's no, <laughs> like, there's no situation in which I learn this backstory and I'm like, oh, well, that's okay then. Like, <laughs> I, I don't want the backstory to, in order to be able to absolve them, I want the backstory just to be able to understand more of, you know, the dynamics of what are going on. Because it's, I mean, like you said, this is the parallel that we're making is, you know, to the Third Reich, clearly. Um it's pretty horrific. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to point out that I almost said when we were talking about the previous episode and then I saved for this one. So, bending. Katara, it seems, needs actual water or ice in order to bend. She needs the physical presence of that element already there and then she can manipulate it. Aang has air everywhere, and so he can always manipulate the air. Zuko and other firebenders seem to just be able to create fire at will and to manipulate existing fire. Like when he's meditating and there's the candles and the flames go up and down. But also, when he's fighting, he just seems to be able to shoot fireballs, regardless of whether or not there are any fires around him and I guess that could be wrong if I haven't been paying close enough attention but that's what I think I've gleaned so far yeah you got it and earthbenders are like water in that they actually need the earth so that's like the whole thing they take them away from any rock or any soil or any you know earth substance Um, and so they are completely unable to bend and so it seems like the Fire Nation is the only exception. Aang seems like an exception because he'll never be separated from his element unless, I guess, they stick him in a vacuum or in space or something. But like, <laughs> it seems like, you they know... They actually stick him in space. There in you go. Two, they just shoot him in a rocket up into space. There you go. He goes up to Mars to, uh, to see Matt Damon uh, <laughs> in The Martian. Um you know, but it seems, so it's like he, he might as well be able to conjure it because it's just always available. But it seems like earth and water in particular are really limited in their bending abilities because the element needs to already exist in the environment before they can manipulate it. That seems really unfair. <laughs> I always kind of looked at it because it, it does, like, to me, the Fire Nation's bending ability definitely sticks out because they can literally create fire. Right. Um, but I guess to me, it just means, like, they're sort of 
form of bending makes air combustible around them. That's mm. kind of the way I look at it. Um, and you will see, and I like this, not this season, but this is not really a spoil. You will see bending evolve and people use bending in different ways. So this is just like the very basic overview of, of the different nation style of bending. But you will see as the series progresses, the different things you can do with it. Um, that isn't just necessarily confined to, I have, I need to have the element around me to, to Mm -hmm. work it. Okay. Yeah. Whatever you think the limitations of any of them are, there's a lot of trade-offs. Sure. But some of them do, you know, swing wide and high, wide and high. Like it's, yeah. I mean, JJ said it was, it's just, you know, they, they grow and change a little bit as the show goes on and you get to see like, oh, there's nuance to this too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see. And then, of course, um, my my exact note, if I read it out, is this battle is cool as hell. <laughs> <laughs> this this I th- I mean, we've seen some other stuff that's been pretty cool. Um, this was the first battle that really impressed me. Um, you know, maybe part of that was manipulation because it's these people taking their power back. And so that's, of course, an emotional, you know, triumphant sort of a thing. Um, but also just the style of the martial arts that it, this type of bending is based on. Like we were talking about that really grounded, like rooted type of movement. Um, the way that Haru and his father work together to bend, um, which I think the only time we've seen that kind of a thing before is I think we saw Iroh and Zuko at some point doing similar things where they were bending in unison. Um, possibly, I think, at the end of episode two when they're, when the Fire Nation is um, fighting Aang and Katara um, after he's been kidnapped. Oh, right, yeah, they send off that big fireball. Yeah, after. they, like, yeah, yeah, together they do it. And so that's the only other time that we've seen that necessarily and here we see it as a father and son because we've seen other people like bend in concert you know and like other benders doing things around each other or whatever but it's like that kind of a you can tell that you have to be like in sync with the other person to be doing that collective um movement and have that shared goal and that you know whatever so I, I liked that quite a bit I just thought it was You know, too, and also it's coal, and so it's like these little tiny nuggets of earth, and, you know, they used them in um, expected ways, you know, they were kind of like, they shot them as little pellets after people, but they also combined them to form masses and to form shapes and other things and, and do it in slightly unexpected ways. So I just really thought that visually, I thought that this battle scene was the most impressive that I'd seen so far in the show. All right. Are those your, is that your summary thoughts so far? Yeah. I think the only other thing that I have that we don't really, we hadn't really touched on yet was, um, you know, one of the things that Katara and Haru bond over is, you know, his father has been enslaved and Katara's mother was murdered, um, by the, 
Fire Nation, most likely her dad too, but we don't have confirmation on that one yet. Um, but she has this necklace that her was her mother's. And at the end of the episode, she loses it. And Zuko, you know, picks it up. That's kind of the final moment of the episode is he um, is standing there, you know, in the wreck of the ship after the Earth Nation has escaped. The Earth Kingdom benders have escaped and he picks up this broken necklace that belongs to Katara. Um, and that, like, really hit me really hard, actually. I have some, like, sentimental... I am a very sentimental person, and I have, like, pieces of jewelry or things that are incredibly sentimental to me. And I would, I mean, I would just be distraught. And then just the image of him, like, her enemy, like, picking it up and holding it at the end. I don't know. It was really kind of... It kind of got me where I live a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, what are your thoughts about this? Um, I mean, I think we covered a lot of it. Just, um, yeah, I was, I mean, like, I I like that you, you pointed out that the old guy who, like, named names, basically, um, didn't ever catch any shit for it. It never came back around to that guy because he's not really the problem. I mean... No, not at all. He, he's part of it, but, like, he's certainly not the motivating force. He would have his life be other ways, like, a another way if he could. Yeah, he's the symptom, not the cause. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, George Decay. Yeah. Oh, there, there was a, um, I don't even remember what this was, I just wrote this down, that, um, one of the prisoners gets sent to a week of solitary confinement for doing something, I don't know. And I just remember thinking, like, a week of solitary is straight-up torture. Like, yeah. That's it. Yeah, and it wasn't anything. It was him. I think he coughed. Yeah, it was oh, yeah. completely. You're right. Yeah, there was, was no completely. There's no. It reason was not for in it. subordination. It was not. You know, it was an involuntary reaction. So, yep. That you know, remember, Fire Nation are the Nazis of this world. For sure. Super dark show, you guys. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And yet really funny. You know, they've got their moments of levity in there. Um, actually, what I did make a note of, because I didn't actually have too many notes for this particular episode. I think it does a lot of heavy lifting plot-wise, character-wise, you know, does a lot of stuff. So I didn't have a ton of notes, but I actually, what I really liked about it is it's, it's kind of the first episode where it's showing Sokka as the strategist of the group. He, yes. Going forward, and this is kind of the first oh, time yeah. you see it, going forward he kind of starts to prove himself as sort of the general. He's the, as he says later, I'm the idea guy. You know, he comes up <laughs> with ideas and he, um, because if you also think about it, he's the only non-bender of this group. That is true. His sister's waterbender, Aang is an airbender, you know, so he's the only one without a bending ability. And of course, like Zuko is on their tail and Zuko is a firebender. So he, it's, but he's not like dead weight in the group at all. He isn't. He is, you know, he's clever and he comes up with things and, you know, he's got some fighting ability and, you know, even if it's not bending. So I think you could easily kind of in the, like, like you got in the first two episodes, like make Sokka the butt of every joke and make him dead weight and make mm -hmm. him not contribute. But the show really avoids that. You know, they let him grow and develop too, even though like, you know, he isn't as powerful as a sister or Aang. Yeah. I appreciate that too. 
So, yeah, I just love Sokka. <laughs> really, he just really is my favorite. Anytime Sokka, like, levels up in any little way, I'm always like, oh, bless. <laughs> that is an excellent way to put it, too. Like, Sokka levels up, because everybody else, like, has magic superpowers, and Sokka just, like, steps up his game a little bit from time to time. Yeah, and it's, like, character development or, like, you know, plot development or whatever. But, you know, like, the last time he leveled up from, you know, going from being a chauvinist to not being a chauvinist anymore. And, you know, so it's, like, little little steps. I'm like, oh, Sokka, bless. I love you. <laughs> but, yeah, I didn't have a ton of other notes aside from, like, so I just wrote in all caps, George Takei. <laughs> right, I have that same exact note. <laughs> Um, like I said, Kelly, I don't know how you didn't recognize that voice because it's I, so obvious. You will notice that I, um, like on my first, you guys also have to remember, you guys have seen this a million times. I'm watching it for the first time and I'm really, um, not good at that kind of identification. Words. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, well, words are hard. Um, yeah. What what was that thing Donald Trump said? I have all the best words. Um, <laughs> all of them. All the best words. I know a lot of words. Um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> this, this podcast is dark enough without going down that road. So... Yeah, I just didn't know. I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna be able to pick out a lot of voice actors and then as soon as you guys tell me who they are, I'll be like, Oh yeah, that person. But yeah. Well, let me give you a quick non spoilery heads up. I because we didn't record this one on time, I got a little jittery and watched the next three that we're supposed to watch. <laughs> um, I know, it was and, really hard for me to stop after this one too. I was like, God yeah, I didn't. I didn't stop. Um, but in, in the next one, um, there's an old man um, who is voiced by the guy that you might remember from the beginning of Die Hard as being um, like the head of Nakatomi who gets <gasps> shot by Alan Rickman. Mr. Takagi? Yeah, like Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi. Like father of folk. He goes down that whole oh, list, you know. I um, love Die Hard. With an unreserved, unironic, <laughs> deep, deep, deep emotional love. Well, if you listen closely, you will hear the old man in the next episode. It's like, oh, hey, there's that guy I know from that movie I like. I'm very excited. Um, other than that, yeah, I've just got some other um, voice acty stuff notes. Haru's dad, uh, Tyro is played by Kevin Michael Richardson, who has Thank you. I was like, it's the... 500 credits to his name. He's the voice of um, Goliath from Gargoyles. Yeah. Um, no, that's... Um, is it not? No, that's... Crap, what's his name? He, he also did the voice of Spawn in the HBO Spawn cartoon. David something. Keith David. No, that's right. Keith, Keith David. David. That's what, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. I just like... I was um, like, his voice is so familiar. Why is it so familiar? And I wrote down a few things that he's been in. Uh, Rick and Morty, The Boondocks. He was Captain Gantu in Lilo and Stitch, like the military guy from space. Who was oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he's done the voice of Jabba the Hutt in a bunch of things. Apparently he has taken up the Barney Rubble mantle in recent <laughs> years. Um, but yeah, he's in everything. You always hear him in um, any of the Family Guy, American Dad. You know, he's all over those shows. 
Yeah, because he's got such a distinctive deep baritone bass voice that I'm yeah, always like, sure. I know that guy. I'm sure I've heard him in other cartoons, but I'm like, I know that guy. Yeah, he's one of those one of those voice actors that is a worker. Um, and aside from that, yeah, I've just got uh, little notes on George Takei. He was in Adventure Time and Futurama and Archer, and he played Kaito Nakamura in Heroes back when I cared about that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> back in the day when Heroes was good, which was all of one season. Yep. Um, and then Mako, who does the voice of... Um, Iroh was the voice of Aku on Samurai Jack, and he played a bit part on The West Wing. He, he was the um, uh, Nobel laureate who, I guess, shared the prize with the president, and they have, like, a weird rivalry yeah. together. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's him. Nice. That's all I got here. All right. Do you guys have any spoilery thoughts? Based uh, on anything few, I've I, said or embarrassing uh, things I may have. <laughs> I, I feel like I had a bunch of thoughts and then I forgot them because we've been doing this for, this is like a longer episode. <laughs> I have a couple, but I can hold off on them actually because yeah. I, it's part of this enjoyment is me, well, just basically holding the information over your head, really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, it's up to you so, guys. Some some of the things you said, I'm just, it's kind of like big series things that I don't really want to address, even in a spoiler thing, I, I'm not sure. Like little character moments, I could hold off on, I think. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't, I don't have know. anything like urgent or what, I didn't jot anything down in like a hurry. Yeah, yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well then... That, I think, brings us to the end of this episode. That wraps up this week's installment of the Earth Kingdom Prairie Home Companion. Next time, we'll be covering episode 7, The Spirit World, Winter Solstice Part 1, episode 8, Avatar Roku, Winter Solstice Part 2, and episode 9, The Waterbending Scroll. So be sure to tune in for newbie recaps, know-it-all nerdery, and general squeeing all around. As always, you can subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your podcast provider of choice, or just visit our website at earthkingdomradio.com. And if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me, Mike, at robo underscore pants on Twitter and I promise to actually start using that. (laughs) (laughs) And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter or my website at sjjones.com. Our theme music is Cattails by Kevin McLeod and our logo was designed and created by our very own JJ. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.